Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it, we find the good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May that good news go forward in power this morning from this pulpit. May your people never grow tired of seeing what God the Son has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So these last two weeks, uh, we've covered the, the preeminent and the universal glory and lordship of Jesus Christ. That was the uh, center of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And if you remember, uh, that breaks uh, down into two different sections that we covered over those two weeks. That first section being Christ as the Lord over all of creation. He made everything. He upholds everything. Everything exists for him because he is God. And this includes everything seen and unseen. The second section was he was the Lord over salvation, or the new creation. That through his atoning death and resurrection, he is remaking all things. He is reconciling unto himself everything. To put it another way, this is Jesus' world twice over. It's his world as creator, and it's his world as savior. One of you this week sent me uh, this quote. It's from an early church father. His name is Athanasius. He was from Alexandria in Egypt. He was born around 300 AD. He picks up on this theme from Colossians 1. Now we need to note that Athanasius was African. In fact, uh, his enemies referred to him as the Black Dwarf. And this is a reminder that we should keep in, in our hearts and our minds that the church and our Christian heritage is not, as many unbelievers say, white. Right, so he's an early church doctor in the early centuries, known as the Black Dwarf from Africa. Uh, the early church was African, Middle Eastern, and European. And it just so happens that the Middle East and Northern Africa fell to the sword of Islam. And Christianity flourished in Europe. Almost fell to the sword of Islam, but that's a history lesson for later. Athanasius was known for his defense of biblical Christology. Who Jesus is. That's what he was, he was known for. And this is what he wrote in the 300s. He said, We will begin then with the creation of the world and with God its maker. For the first fact that we must grasp is this. The renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word, that's Jesus, who made it in the beginning. There is thus no inconsistency between creation and in salvation, for the one Father has employed the same agent for both works, affecting the salvation of the world through the same word who made it in the beginning. How does Athanasius from 300 ADs from Africa and me come to the same conclusions? Because we're reading the same Bible. The Christian faith transcends culture. Christ is the agent of creation, he made everything, he's the agent of salvation. He's remaking everything by his blood. So if you ever wonder where we got these ideas about Christ being truly God and truly human, look no further than Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The early confession of the church, the church fathers confess this 
in the early centuries of the church, the one, two, three, four, and five hundreds. The Protestant reformers picked it up again in the 15, 16, and 17 hundreds. And the evangelical church today still proclaims that same Jesus. 2,000 years of faithful Christians from all over the world have preached the same Christ. It's not just us. And so Paul takes this really big vision of Jesus, and in today, today's passage, he applies it to the Colossians. So the heart there is 15 through 20. This is who this Jesus is, and he starts these verses by saying, And you... Now that I've established for you who this Jesus is, now I'm going to turn and address you. And you have been saved by this Jesus. That Jesus who made everything, that Jesus who's reconciling all things to himself, that same Jesus who upholds the universe, that's the one who is saving you. That's the one who is reconciling everything. You are not some bystander in the story of God. And so throughout the rest of this letter, Paul is going to take the Jesus we find in verses 15 through 20, and he's going to apply him to all of life. That's really what this book, it hinges on, those verses, and then Paul takes it systematically and says, here's how that Jesus impacts this and this and this, and he starts with us. And we're going to see today this reminder of who we were before Christ, what the gospel then accomplishes in us because of Christ, the condition that is placed upon us as we follow Christ, and then we're going to try to make some applications. And we'll be out of here by 3 p.m., I promise. So you're going to see in today's passage that there are many parallels from 15 through 20. Many of the same concepts and words are used here, applied to us, that were used to describe Jesus' work. For example, the term reconciliation appears in both. There's a comprehensive picture given in 15 through 20, and then again here in the final verse. This gospel is preached to all of creation. It's being declared everywhere. So Paul built the foundation, and now he applies it. So the first thing to consider, the first truth, is who we were before this Jesus. The abysmal state of every one of us before Christ. With all the glory and wonder and the the good news, as it were, in those verses immediately before this, we get a stark contrast here when he goes, and you, and you. Christ is glorious, he's powerful, he's holy and pure, and us, in comparison, are fallen, broken sinners. And so the first description Paul gives here is that we are alienated, or we were alienated, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be alienated? Well, it comes from, it's, it's very close to being, uh, with the word being estranged. It communicates that you were once at peace with something, and now you are no longer at peace with something. Man was at peace with God, and it is now estranged or alienated from him. There's a separation that has been introduced into this relationship. And at the heart of that separation between God and man, man being the pinnacle of his creation, is sin. We are separated in our first father, Adam. All of the human race is one in their first father, Adam. He is our head. He is, you know, when he fell, every single one of his children with him fell into sin. So much so that if you are not in Christ, the second Adam, 
you remain alienated from God from birth. And your sin is the cause of that alienation. To put it another way, there is no neutral ground here. All of the world is God's. All of the world is Christ's. He has created it. And you, outside of Christ, cannot claim to be neutral. You are alienated, and as we'll see in the next description, hostile to Christ. In Adam, in your sinful nature, you are cut off from God. But it gets worse than just being alienated from God in Christ, or at least worse as we work out the implications of that. You are also cut off from your purpose, from your created mean, meaning. Again, in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, all things were made by Christ and for Christ. This includes you. You were made for Christ, but here you're reminded that you are alienated from the one you were created for. This is something we, we must remember. We have taught for far too long, we have indoctrinated generations for far too long, that we have just evolved from meaningless cosmic goo. That there is no such thing as right and wrong, and if that there is any meaning to be had in this life, you must make it for yourself, which really means that there is no meaning in this life once you die. And so we have whole swaths of the last several generations who have been trained not to look beyond their own navels because of all of life is about them. And this makes them feel rather empty when they're honest with themselves. You can feel that emptiness shadow creeping in and engulfing our people. I've read you this quote before, but Charles Dawkins, the, the famous atheist and scientist, he put it this way. He says, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Dawkins, Dawkins' argument is this. If there is no God, there is no meaning. His premise is correct, or his conclusion is correct based upon his premise. If there is no God, there is no meaning, and we should just be honest about that. And these are the ideas that we have trained our children up in for years. And these ideas have consequences. And you're seeing it play out every day in your family, in your friends, in our culture. This week I read a story, a news story, of about the man who tried to assassinate and murder the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. No matter what justice you would line yourself up to murder, it's wrong. Okay. Let's just put that, put that forward. But what motivated him was not just that he disagreed with him. This is what the news story said. What was motivating this young man to try to kill a Supreme Court Justice? Quote, he stated that he began thinking about how to give his life a purpose. How to give his life a purpose. And he decided that he would kill the Supreme Court Justice. I do not think this young man is alone in realizing he has no purpose, so he's going to go kill someone. I think that has motivated a lot of killers and especially mass shooters for the last couple decades. So let me put it another way. Yes, ideas have consequences, but you cannot catechize and train up an entire generation into be in self-centered meaninglessness while teaching them to always view themselves as victims and not expect the fruit we are getting now. Ideas matter. What we tell our children is true matters. 
and the root of the alienation that all of us feel is that we exist for Christ. And as long as you remain separated from Christ, your Creator, not the cosmic goo, but as long as you remain alienated from Christ, you will feel a purposelessness. Without Him, there is no meaning. The next descriptor that Paul gives us is that pre-Christ, we were hostile in mind. Being alienated from God uh, works itself out in many ways. And one of the chief ways it works itself out is in our thinking. Hostile in mind. Unlike the rest of physical creation, humans are rational. That means we think and we reason. We can, as the old saying goes, humans can think about thinking. Animals don't do that. We think about thinking. So much so, sometimes a wife will ask her husband, what are you thinking about? And he goes, nothing. (laughs) But there's entire philosophical movements that can be summarized as, I think, therefore I am. That's the starting place for Descartes. And I'd like to thank him, it's very insightful. I think, therefore I am. Sometimes I wonder if many of these philosophers are smart or they're just silly and have lots of spare time on their hands. For far too long, we've heard well-meaning churches and pastors say that we need to move Christianity from the head to the heart. And to an extent, I get it. There's a way in which we can know facts about Christianity and it has no impact in our life whatsoever. If that's what's meant by the saying, we need to move Christianity from the head to the heart, then I'm, I'm all for it. But with today's obsession with feelings, emotions, and the mantra of follow your heart, we've turned Christianity into a mushy, gooey, nonsensical rom-com. Jesus is my boyfriend, and Christianity is here to make me feel better. If that's what's meant by moving Christianity from the head to the heart, and that's largely how it's played itself out, then I'm wholeheartedly against it. You will find no such division in Christianity between the head and the heart. In fact, in Scripture... The head is more often the reference to the seat where we make our decisions. That's your, that's your head. And that we definitely, and that definitely includes the mind. Feelings are not your God. And the Bible stresses again and again the importance of the mind. God is the source of the human mind, and in some marvelous way, your mind in mine reflects the divine mind. It is a good thing. Elsewhere, or elsewhere, Paul commands us to renew our minds so that we may offer our lives a living sacrifice. He tells us to think on, to dwell on things that are above, to whatever is good and true, to let those things fill your mind. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The biblical view of the dynamic between the head and the heart is this. The head, or your mind, determines what it believes to be good, what it believes to be right, what it believes to be beautiful. The heart then desires what the mind labels as good, right, and beautiful. So the mind says, this is what is good. The heart says, I want what the mind says is good. And then the will pursues what the heart desires. And ironically enough, then our actions that we Our will leads us to do impact how we think about what is good, right, and beautiful. It's a circle. 
But here Paul establishes that in our fallen condition, our minds are corrupted through and through and are hostile to God. The mind must be set right before you can be turned back to God. Sin stains what was meant for good and becomes hostile to its creator. And so our minds are often wholly set on ourselves, our desires, our goals, and our way of doing things. Do you doubt it? If you would like to have that argument, we could do that after church. It's not the evidence all around you that our minds are often set all upon me. So much so that if you were to question what somebody thinks is good or true about themselves today, you are the most ugliest of monsters in our culture. How could you question someone else's identity? Because your mind's hostile to God. That's why. Your mind can be wrong. In fact, it is nearly unmentionable in polite company to talk about God. Because our minds are hostile to him. Our minds are not only set against God, but they are also set toward evil. That what a man wants and what he seeks is often that which is contrary to the will of God. And we are really good at justifying why we want those things. Paul then gives us a a third description of us pre-Christ. We do evil deeds. You are alienated from God, you're hostile in mind, and that leads you to do bad things. You do them because you want to do them. Your ideas and your beliefs about what are good and true lead you to live a certain way. Satan, in other words, had to deceive and change Eve's thinking in the garden before she took the fruit and ate it. He lied to her, and she believed it. The more lies you believe, the more evil deeds you will do. This, brothers and sisters, is why truth is so important. And this is also why things increasingly get darker as we throw out God's truth. The more lies you believe, the more evil you will do. And so, our ideas matter, and we can become really wretched people. Think about all the carnage you see out there. Think about the carnage in your own lives when you've believed a lie. Maybe it's never happened to any of you, but it certainly happened to me. And by listing our hostile minds and deeds, Paul is saying that the whole person, all of us, is alienated from God. That there is not a single part of you as a human outside of Christ that is not sinful and fallen. This is called the doctrine of total depravity. That does not mean that you're all as bad as you can possibly be. It does not mean that everyone is Hitler. Now there are some worse perversions than others, but it does mean that sin's impact upon the whole person is pervasive. It impacts all of you. And so our status outside of Christ in a word is this, bad. It's not good. Your status without Christ is not good. And outside of Christ, so goes every one of us. Into hatred, into envy, gossip, lies, Murder, sexual exploitation and perversion, genocide, tyranny, etc., etc., etc. The wages of sin is death. Paul doesn't stay there very long, though. He moves in verse 22 to tell us, what then does the gospel do for us? What is this hope that we have in the gospel? He has now reconciled us in his body of his flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach 
before him, that is God the Father. Note the word he, the start, verse 22. Who is that he? That he is the Jesus of verses 15 through 20, the supreme Lord of creation and salvation. That he is now reconciled you to God. I want to say this. That Jesus, that glorious picture of Christ, that Jesus has reconciled you. Never, ever, ever, ever get over that. That's it. If he doesn't reconcile you, there's no hope. If he's not that Jesus of 15 through 20, there's no hope. But because he is, he has now reconciled you to God the Father. This redemption is not just cosmic, and it's not just personal. It's both. Christ loves his creation, and he loves each one of his people, that he has reconciled you to the Father. You are separated and cut off from God, from eternal life, from your purpose, having no hope in this world because you were made by God and for God and yet you rejected God. But now he has taken those two broken pieces and he's brought them back together. He does this, Paul says, in the body of his flesh. Why does he say in the body of his flesh? Well, at least three reasons why he, he goes out of his way to say the body of his flesh. The first is to make it clear that the body here in this verse is not the same body he mentions in verse 18. Where it says Christ is the head of the body, the church. What we're talking about here is the actual incarnated body of God the Son. In the body of his flesh, he reconciled you. He put the wrath of God, the Father, upon himself, took your sins upon himself in his flesh, and reconciled you. Second, the emphasis on physical here was certainly distress that this eternal Christ, God the Son, came with a real physical body. It didn't just appear, as some of the early heresies said, it didn't just appear like he had a body. No, Paul wants you to know, the Colossians, that this Christ had a real body. The physical is not inherently evil, as the false teaching Paul is trying to combat says. The fact that the eternal God took upon himself a human nature and is redeeming everything seen and unseen shows us that creation is good and being redeemed. And he uses this term, the body of his flesh, third, because God the Son had to become one of us to die for us, at least, in, at least in two ways. To represent us, he had to become one of us. To replace the first Adam, he had to join Adam's race and to stand in our place, to become the new head. And moreover, since the punishment for sin is death, the Savior had to be able to die and God in his divine nature cannot die. If he doesn't add a human nature to himself, he can't go to the cross. He can't die and rise again on the third day. And so in his flesh, Jesus Christ brought about reconciliation because he is both God and man. The two parties that were estranged were found in the one person. And the result is that those who are hostile in mind and deed who are tainted and defiled by their sin, are now presented to God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. This is your status before Christ. Your status in Christ is you are holy, blameless, 
and above reproach. You do not stand before God on your own merits. You are not holy and blameless on your own. On your own, you are the exact opposite. And yet, in Christ, you get his holiness, you get his righteousness, and you get his blamelessness. It's all him and nothing of yourself. So this is the gospel. God made creation good. Creation was stained and fallen in sin. Creation groans under the weight of sin. Creation is being restored through the work of its creator. Creation is being renewed and will be made permanent by the blood of Christ's promise, or his cross. And that is the hope of the gospel. And it is this message of who Christ is and what he has done that Paul then says, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he's universal, 15 through 20, focuses in on the church, and then he expands back out again to this universal message. As David Powell says in his commentary on the book of Colossians, he writes this, Therefore, as Christ is the firstborn of creation, his gospel demands the submission of all creation. That's what Paul's getting at. Just as Christ owns everything, his gospel demands that everything will be his. How then should you live? That's verse 23. Christ has done this, so how then should we live? If indeed, Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You have to note this. Verse 23 is a conditional statement. That's a conditional statement. If you do this, you will get this. What is the promise? What will you get? You will become reconciled to God, holy and above reproach, if you have faith. But you must note that the condition isn't just any faith. It's a specific type of faith that Paul lists as the condition here. The character of their faith, this faith, is not a momentary emotional response. The character of this faith is not a one-time, been-there-done-that kind of faith. It is not walking an aisle 30 years ago and then living however you want. It's not saying the sinner's prayer once upon a time. It's not signing a card or raising your hand at a preacher once. It's none of those things. The condition here is an ongoing, living faith that continues throughout a person's life. One that is stable and steadfast and does not drift away from the gospel. To put it plainly, there has been for too long a twisted distortion of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That if I was a kid seven years old at camp 50 years ago, and I signed a card, and then I went on to live my life however I wanted for the rest of my life, that I'm somehow still saved. The New Testament knows nothing of that kind of faith. That's saving. The if, the condition, is if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Why is that the condition? Because real faith is a gift of God that transforms us from the inside out. Yes, you will go through ups and downs in this life. But your faith will never fully disappear. That Jesus of 15 through 20, who saves you, really does save you. And he begins a work in you that is guaranteed to continue till the end. 
And so this condition of if you continue is really a warning. It's a warning to the church that you must have faith in Jesus and you must keep believing. You cannot just do whatever you want. You cannot have or continue on in hostility to God and evil deeds with no remorse, no repentance. The truth of the matter is that once a person is saved, he or she is saved forever. God keeps them. Christ says, whatever the Father puts into my hand, I will never let go. And one of the ways he keeps them is by giving us warnings like this. Continue in the faith. Because the sheep know the shepherd's voice. And the shepherd warns them, don't go that way. Keep going this way. And the true sheep listen. This is how one way that Christ keeps his sheep. So I must echo that to you this morning. Work in your heart to have a steadfastness in your faith. One that is stable. One that is not tossed to and fro by the insanity of our day. When this Jesus saves you, he keeps you. So I want to make two basic applications this morning. First, builds off of that, as Paul has told us elsewhere, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Your salvation is holy of grace and comes through a supernatural faith, but that faith will put you to work. God is three times holy, and in Christ you are holy, and in Christ he will change you. But there's always a condition. In all of God's covenants, he always gives a condition. He says, Adam, you get this garden, but only if you don't eat from that tree. He says to Israel, you get this land, but only if you keep my covenant. If not, I'm going to kick you out. And then he kicks them out because they don't. He says to David, your offspring will keep this throne if they obey. If they don't, I'm going to discipline them. And in the new covenant, he says, you must continue steadfastly in the faith. You must overcome this world by the blood of the lamb and the faithfulness of your testimony. And the good news of the gospel is that even in giving us a condition, Christ empowers his people to keep the condition. If keeping that condition was wholly up to you, you wouldn't do it. That's the story of Israel. They couldn't do it. But because Christ indwells his people, they will keep the condition. So sharpen your faith. Train yourself to become steadfast. Repent when you fall short and follow Christ. Keep on believing in him. Be resolute. Be immovable in an age gone mad and throw yourself upon the rock of Christ again and again. Second application. One way to stay steadfast in your faith today is to reject the rabid deconstructionism of our day. Deconstructionism is just another different way of saying postmodernism or critical theory. And you're like, Levi, you're not making this any easier to understand. But the aim of, of deconstructionism is to deconstruct and to tear down all of our institutions and our beliefs and to show how all of these institutions and these beliefs, including Christianity, are shaped by culture and are inherently oppressive. All right, that's the heart of deconstructionism. And the funny thing is, is that deconstructionism doesn't play by its own rules. 
It doesn't recognize that it itself is culturally bound, and it doesn't recognize that by denying that there's a universal standard, oppression is not wrong. Why is oppression wrong if there is no God? It's not. You just don't like it. It says that our culture, deconstructionism says, especially the leftist wing of our culture, is the supreme standard to judge everything else by. And I say, well, that sounds very imperialistic of you. Sadly, there is a chorus of deconstruction and deconversion stories of people deconstructing their Christian faith. It's happening all over the place. appears on, on all of the uh, social media platforms. And the claim is always that Christianity is too Western, it's too white, it's too oppressive, or whatever. And I've already shown you that the doctrines we believe about Christ and his work are came from, written in these books by men with darker skin than me, and they were defended by men with much darker skin than me throughout the generations. It transcends culture. Well, and the, the irony of it is, is that deconstructionism and postmodernism, the founders of, of, uh, the founders of that movement, are all very pale. They're all very, very white and very, very Western. It's a very white ideology. But really, this movement of deconversion stories is just the latest way to not be steadfast in your faith. Paul says, continue on steadfastly. And if you look at their arguments for five minutes with a critical mind, you will see that it's nonsense. It falls apart with the most slightest of cross-examinations. So instead of deconstructionism, what should we do? Well, we should pick up what the Reformers called us to do, to examine ourselves in our churches, in our communities, in our cultures all the time. Last week, we sang a song that Phil wrote about the five solas of the Reformation, the five alones that capture the heart of the gospel. Right? Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and all of this is revealed by the chief authority of the Christian life, Scripture alone. We have those five alones as our statement of faith on our website. But there's a sixth slogan of the Reformation that drove all of these, and maybe I can convince Phil to now write another song. And that is Semper Reformanda. You can think of the Marines' slogan, Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful. Semper Reformanda means always reforming. The reformers knew that the church and individual Christians always had to hold up Scripture alone as their measuring rod and always see where we were not aligning with Scripture, individually and corporately. And there is a world of difference between deconstructionism and separ reformanda. Their standard is culture. Right? This is the irony of deconstructionism. Right? The culture has totally corrupted the Christian faith. And then you get out on the other side of deconstructing your faith and you look just like the culture. How did that happen? Their standard is this culture. The Reformation has a standard that is God's word. One movement destroys and, tear down, and tears down and leaves everything worse off. The other destroys with the aim of rebuilding according to God's standards. There are cultural things that American Christianity has built into itself that need to be destroyed. And you will hear me rail against those often. But my standard 
is not what one segment of our society thinks is right or wrong. It's Scripture and Scripture alone. And guess what? When you're truly reforming and casting off cultural things, when you come out the other side, you will look less like the dominant culture. Revolutionary, I know. So the call here is to cling to Christ, cling to his gospel, cling to the universal lordship of Christ, cling to the doctrine that the word of God alone is our chief authority, and measure all things by that. And day by day, you will become more like your Savior, Jesus. And you will continue in the faith. So brothers and sisters, in this weird age that we live, I encourage you to be steadfast and to keep reforming. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in your word we have a universal standard. A book written by you that is stained not only with the blood of your son, but the blood of faithful saints who have ensured that we would have your word from generation to generation. That your gospel would be proclaimed in power as your word is preached. Lord, Build us up so that we might be steadfast, that our faith might continue until you call us home. And that, Lord, that as we hold up your gospel and your word, that we might be reformed degree by degree. And that this church and our sister churches in this community and around the country and the world, that we would recover that vision that we don't care what the world thinks. That we don't care what they call us, but that we would always be reforming according to your word and by your spirit. Lord, make us that kind of church. It's in your name we pray. Amen.